Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast this week, Dr. David Beaumont, wanted to be a doctor since he was 11 years old. In the course of a long career, he's come to realize that medicine needs to reorganize in order to improve the prospects for people who present for care. Here to make his case for that change is Dr. David Beaumont. David, you're very welcome to this call. Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Thank you, Moyes. Lovely to be here. Excited to talk to you. I'm particularly excited to speak with you, David, because I'm talking to another clinician. What brought you into medicine? Why medicine? Why, as a youngster, did you decide that you wanted to to do this particular job? At the age of 11, I knew I was going to be a doctor. It wasn't that I wanted to be a doctor. I just knew I was going to be a doctor. So a true calling. And I think the event that led me to it was... My dad's boss was a big man, very imposing man, until he had a stroke. And it took his right side completely, and it took his speech. And, and as I met him, I was much younger. Than I was probably at the age of seven then, and I just knew that he was much less of a person than the person I had known and respected and I just wanted to help. And as a seven-year-old did you realize what medicine was going to be like because clearly trying to deal with that is the most it's probably the most complicated situation that you could possibly have witnessed. How did your realization dawn as time went by? The two great passions in my life at that time were nature and science. And I grew up in the UK and at off-peak times, there would be something on television called the Open University. And I vividly recall a black and white program where they were explaining the the, the molecular structure of the, of, the, of the DNA molecule. There's this wonderful, um, this wonderful model in doweling and little wooden balls. And I wrote about it in an essay at school. And I remember the red line through the word monocules, which was corrected by the teacher to molecules. So for me, actually, medicine became about the combination of science and nature. I'm always interested when doctors say this because you're talking about science, you're talking about the DNA, you're talking about molecules, you're talking about things that are a very reductionist view of the situation that you had experienced, which is here was your dad's boss, a lesser man because of the impact of arthromatous vascular disease, presumably on his brain. As your career unfolded, did you begin to see it differently? Did you go from that fascination with the molecule to the fascination with the anatomy and then from that to the person that you were dealing with? Absolutely, I did. And I can pin that down to the year 2000 which was the year that I left general practice. 
I loved general practice, but I found a calling within medicine that I loved more, which was occupational medicine, the health of workers. And in 2000, I left general practice to become an occupational physician, working with employers, looking after the health of their workers. And my specialist training very quickly helped me to realize that, I'm going to say it, we'd got it all wrong. And that as a GP, I had been focusing with my colleagues on the disease of the person, whereas an occupational physician, I'm actually focusing on the life of the person and their health. And my intention is to keep them healthy. And it hit me like a thunderbolt. And and also that there was nothing wrong with my training. My training was absolutely correct, except it was reductionist. We had been looking further and further down the microscope to find the cause of the disease in terms of pathogenesis. But I had been taught nothing about the health of the person. I kind of then started doing the what if question. What if we started differently? What if we designed health systems differently? I had an epiphany in 2013. I was on a plane on the way from Sydney. It was the red eye flight. It was first thing in the morning. And we were on the runway taxiing and my neighbor was clearly drifting off to sleep. And so was I. And I suddenly went, yes. That's it. And he went, what, 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 what's happened? What's happened? And I said, I've just worked out the answer to a problem. And, and he said, what, what do you do? And I said, I'm a doctor who designs health systems. I had no idea where that statement came from because I'd never had that thought before. But he said, tell me more. So I described to him a model of medical practice where we treat the patient as a whole person. And I called it whole person health. And from that time in 2013, I have been refining that model and have developed it into a model of medical practice I call positive medicine. I'm trying to understand the nuts and bolts of the challenge that you are about to tackle. Let's take your your dad's boss, he's had this awful event, he's lost the power on the right side, he's lost his speech, and he turns to healthcare for help. And the first thing they do is they check his blood pressure, and they put him on statins, and they put him in physiotherapy, and they do what doctors do, and and we still do that, what doctors do that we can prescribe, or that where we can refer somebody, or where we can do those kind of things but we're not dealing with the problem the problem is that this man either feels less than or is less than and he's different at the end of that event than he was several years before when he was the great man that your dad had known as a boss how do we unpack that? How do we reposition ourselves so that we are responding in a more appropriate way? The word patient means, in Latin, in its Latin root, it means one who suffers. 
But patient means something else to us as well. It means to wait for something to happen. And inherently, patients wait for something to happen, they suffer, and they become passive in the process of the management of their condition. They are dependent on the doctor. Now, I'm just going to introduce a little twist here and say, I think that this is the root cause of doctor burnout. And I had a doctor say to me recently, the problem is that patients expect me to fix them. Because the other side of the equation, we've got patients waiting to be fixed. And we've got doctors with the weight of that responsibility on their shoulders. So there is a collusion here that is completely incorrect. So Mr. Horner, as my dad's boss was, was known to me by, became a passive recipient of healthcare in which he couldn't speak, he could hardly move. It was like veterinarian medicine at that point. But the other thing that hadn't happened is that nobody had asked the question, where has this come from? Why has he had a stroke? And in all my time at medical school, the vast majority of my time was spent on pathogenesis, understanding the genesis of pathology, understanding the origins of disease, but actually only in the here and now. So the pathogenesis of a stroke is either occlusion of a major blood vessel in the brain or a major brain bleed, but not the antecedents, what led up to that. And this has ultimately led to a particular interest of mine in salutogenesis, the origins of health. And again, zero time was spent in six years at medical school on salutogenesis. What are the origins of health? So not only why did Mr. Horner have his stroke, but what could have stopped him from having a stroke in the first instance, or what circumstances could occur for him to heal from his stroke. And one of the things that I really, really want us to do is to move beyond the concept of curing to the concept of healing. I want to, first of all, acknowledge what you said, and that is that this passivity that we have encouraged is absolutely the root cause of burnout in medicine, because it's turned us essentially into McDonald's service staff. You just have an endless series of customers, and you dish out what you think is going to be a fit-all solution to someone's problem. And it then creates this treadmill on which we have to function in order just to keep the wolf from the door. I want to now try and understand about the training of doctors and whether we in fact have what it takes to do what you're describing. Because part of it is understanding not just the pathogenesis, as in the pathogenesis going back to the, the DNA and, and the molecular structure of things and all the various other nuances that we've now come to appreciate, to include in that the other aspects of 
the impact of an illness and the, and the etiology of an illness, which is both the psychological and the social and many other areas of expertise that we do not have and do not train doctors to acquire. How do we approach that today from where we're standing today? How do we get people to understand that they need another skill set or bring in other insights which they may not have been taught to garner in the course of their training? This is where it all starts. It has to be. Um, And I look back now at my training, which is now nearly 50 years ago, and I see all of the flaws. Now, I'm going to give a little shred of hope here and say that over the course of the last 10 years, the medical student training curriculum has evolved and now takes far more notice of the patient's life. And in fact, the roots of disease all come from the life course of that patient, right from childhood. In fact, childhood being the most important determinant, probably the first thousand days being the most important determinant. Our medical students are being taught this, but it doesn't go far enough. The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and metal health. So Mr. Horner's in this situation where he has had this catastrophic event and he turns to doctors for help. And Mr. Horner has absolutely got the pathogenesis. We could have described it 50 years ago and it probably isn't much different today. However, there are many other aspects to Mr. Horner's life which will now impact on his recovery and his ability to live with this condition. And that is all to do with context. The context in which he now has to live with this. He's no longer going to be able to function as the boss. He's going to have a very different relationship with his family and all the rest of it. How do we unpack that? How do we now create the circumstance in which we become healers and not technicians? The first thing we do is to give the responsibility to the person themselves and their family and explain to them that whatever outcome happens from this point, this catastrophic point in in Mr. Horner's life, whatever the outcome is within his control, up to a certain point. We don't know what, and we have to share, we have to be really open and honest in these discussions. This is where the relationship between the doctor and the person becomes so important. And I talk about a move beyond the doctor-patient relationship to the person-doctor partnership. Because what we have to do is to enable Mr. Horner and his family to find the optimum circumstances for healing. So this is autonomous healing, healing that comes from me and is within my control. The reality is that once the the stroke has occurred, particularly a catastrophic stroke like this, there is actually next to nothing that modern medicine can do. 
and in fact, r routine assessment of Mr. Horner every three months might tweak his blood pressure medication and make sure he's still taking his aspirin as long as it wasn't to bleed. But beyond that, the doctor as such has very little to do in the current paradigm. Not so in positive medicine, which is focused on what can you do to improve your lot? Because we can always be more. No matter what our situation, we can always be more. You're quite right. Just tweaking somebody's blood pressure isn't going to necessarily make his life any easier in those circumstances. He may make some recovery if his neurology is able to somehow rejig itself so that he re regains some of the function that he had before, but he's never going to be the same man again. So in that instance, when we are in that room with that person and we have our 15-minute appointment, which is pretty classical around the world, where do we start this conversation? Not from there is my starting point. I don't generally have less than an hour with my clients. I don't call them patients anymore. I call them clients. 15 minutes is what the system dictates. It is completely insufficient. Interestingly, the Royal College of GPs of London, just a couple of years ago, produced a future document looking at general practice in 2030. And in that, they put the aspiration that over the course of the next 10 years, the average GP consultation will have increased from 10 minutes to 15 minutes. And I just looked at it and went, no, you've missed the point. 15 minutes has to be insufficient. But the answer is twofold. First of all, to deal with the realities of the situation as it is now. And secondly, to paint a picture of hope. And you mentioned in a catastrophic stroke, it may be that there's going to be no improvement, or it may be that the neuroplasticity of the brain allows for alternative pathways. And we have amazing stories of people having had strokes or Parkinson's disease who have taught themselves how to walk by consciously thinking about the muscles involved in moving that leg forward and have gradually trained themselves to walk by using Hebb's law, which says that neurons that fire together wire together and you really can create new pathways. We need to talk about his lack of speech and talk about communication and how he communicates. How do we get the family to engage with that person and develop a form of communication to enable him to express his wishes? There's so much more that we can do than checking blood pressure and tweaking medication. Despite the fact that we have august organizations dealing with the future of healthcare, we are having the same solutions being hammered down in the sense of let's add another five minutes to the consultation. Would that make such a big difference to the outcome for the patient? And what that seems to suggest is there's still a belief in the vast majority of the system that all we need is a better hammer 
Hmm. Because the problem only appears to be a nail. And what you and I have identified here is that the problem isn't a nail. We don't need a bigger hammer. We essentially need a new tool that will allow us to do yes. a better job. Now to go back to the situation we're in today, not many people around the world are going to be able to afford the one-hour appointment. They're going to be relying on that GP that they've known for, for a long time, family physician they've known for a long time. And that physician is going to have to respond to them with this new approach within this paradigm. So how do we start that work? Because clearly an hour isn't going to come till well after 2030 if the College of GPs has, has its way. I have long described myself as being a disruptor. And I've qualified that by saying I'm a positive disruptor. I'm going to add the word revolution to that because what is clear is that an increase from 10 minutes to 15 minutes over 10 years is evolutionary terms. We need to revolutionize the healthcare system. So here in New Zealand, over the course of the last three or four years, we've been having a massive debate about what the healthcare system of the future should look like in New Zealand. It started 12 months ago. We had great discussions. And when it started... I went, no, it's more of the same. And here we are 12 months down the line and there's just been a re-evaluation of the impact of the new system, of the reforms, and the conclusion is nothing's changed. So that's the starting point. For the first time ever at the start of this year, I had a general practice approach me and say, what would it look like to introduce positive medicine into primary care here in New Zealand. And I said, where are you? I'm getting on a plane to come and see you. So we did. And they, were, they kindly took a day out of the practice and we had a day long workshop. And they have just concluded the first stage of a pilot in which they took a group of patients with a variety of different conditions through a positive medicine program led by one of the GPs in the practice. And the feedback we have had from the patients, and I use that term simply because that's what they're called in the practice, the feedback has been fantastic. I now understand much better how I can take control of my own situation, how it's on me to manage my condition. And we're already seeing the glimmer of a new model. I've stopped talking about it and I'm now doing it. It will take time before it becomes standard to see a doctor for an hour, an hour and a half for a first consultation. That's what it takes for me to get a know, to know a person. By the end of an hour and a half for, for a first consultation, I know that person as well as their best friend knows them. In fact, I probably know more about them than their best friend does. And I'll tell you now, one of, one of the questions that I ask of that person is, where do you think your disease has come from? And usually they can tell me. And, and let's just switch slightly from stroke to 
medically unexplained symptoms. Let's go to ME-CFS, chronic fatigue syndrome. I quite often get the answer from people suffering from ME-CFS. I know where it's come from. It came from my childhood sexual abuse. And yet that's never been asked of them before. The only thing they've heard is these are medically unexplained symptoms. We don't know what's causing it and therefore we don't, we can't, and therefore we can't treat it. And this is the problem with the word treatment. There is no medical treatment for MEUCFS. There is absolutely healing available. The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. There are many conditions for which we have no good treatment, basically because we don't understand what the diagnosis is. And without that diagnosis, you, 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 no matter what you try, it's not going to necessarily make a difference. This goes to the very heart of the problem that you are describing or you're tackling. And that is that we know little or nothing about the context of, in which people present their problems. I'm old enough, as I suspect you are too, to remember the, day, the good old days of doing home visits to patients back in the UK, back in the NHS, because I also trained and worked there. And when you did a home visit, you tended to learn far more about the patient than you would have done if the patient had simply rocked up in their Sunday best, as they often did, to your clinic. The problem with home visiting, of course, is it became very expensive and very difficult to sustain because of a whole host of reasons, including and especially the congestion on our roads and the inability to park cars and suitable places. One home visit could cost you a couple of hours in the clinic. So that was the reality of the situation. We have lost sight of the context in which people are presenting. The old-fashioned GPs seem to know far more about us and able to identify much quicker the etiology of our distress as opposed to the etiology of our illness, the etiology of our distress, and we're able to handle that. In positive medicine, how do you achieve this, given that it's going to be a, an office-based visit and you're going to be seeing people in that artificial environment of the clinic? I do almost all my work remotely over a video link. So I'm one stage removed even from the office-based scenario, which I would love, but I actually see people from all, all over New Zealand. The transport issue has been completely removed. Um, and I absolutely talk about their home circumstances. And people can paint a really good picture of where they're at. You use the word distress, which I think is a really important word, but I think there's an even better word, which is disease. And I'd, I'd like to just mention the work of Aaron Antonovsky and his salutogenic model of health. Now, Aronofsky, from his work with concentration camp survivors, came up with a theory, which he published in 1979, that health 
and disease occur along a continuum of health ease to dis-ease. And he even put forward the hypothesis that what disease results from dis-ease is non-specific, that the underlying root cause of all disease, let's say vast majority of disease, is simply dis-ease. Now, this, is, this runs completely counter to my training in pathogenesis, which looked under the microscope at hepatocytes to see fatty liver deposition and understand where, what that was and where that had come from. But suddenly, if we've got a model that says that metabolic syndrome, cardiovascular disease, cancer, autoimmune disease come from one underlying mechanism, which is disease. Disease. Neuroscience has caught up with Antonovsky. And neuroscience is now saying exactly this. The neuroscience that comes from such disciplines, well, actually, there's a, there's a, a portmanteau word for the discipline, which is psycho-neuro-immuno-endocrinology, which explains all of this. And there are many theories that now say underlying all of these disparate conditions is one disease process, which is the response of the body to stress and the impact this has on the endocrine system and the immune system. That many people with these conditions are living in a state of low-grade stress, leading to low-grade inflammation and low-grade reduction in immune system function. And there are lots of papers on this out there now. This has not entered the medical schools, but the evidence is all there that Antonovsky in 79 was, may well be correct. Now let's go back to Mr. Horner, because Mr. Horner has now got this effect of his, uh, the, the stress, or whatever it happened to be, that led to the circumstance in which he ended up in this situation. He now has to navigate his way back from that dis-ease situation to something more at ease with where he is at and how he, what he would like to do next. I think that's the thesis, isn't it, of a lot of your work, is how do we then put the control back into Mr. Horner's hands to say, now where would you like to be in the future and how can I help you to get there? And the way that we do that in positive medicine is with the framework that underpins all of this, which has actually come from the Mari model of health, which is known as Tefari Tapafar. Tefari Tapafar means the four walls of the house. And the house is what makes up us. And the four walls of the house, or the four pillars of health, as I call them, are physical health, psychological health, emotional health, our relationships, and spiritual health. Spiritual health in the context of what brings meaning and purpose to life and the connections we have with ourself, with, our, with others, with nature and the land, and potentially with something beyond. And what we do is to go through all four of those pillars and help that person work out for themselves 
what they can do, what they would like to do, and how they are going to get there. Not how I'm going to help you get there, but how they are going to get there. And it's really interesting as we go through the process, people come back to me with completely different answers. And the answer might be, for instance, you know what I've realized? I'm not happy in my relationship. I'm not happy in my marriage. And, and there are issues that remain unresolved between us that we both know are there and we wouldn't go anywhere near them, but it's not good enough. Or it may be spiritual health. I was brought up a Christian. I've completely rejected it. I'm a devout atheist, but I feel as though there's miss something missing from my life and I want to explore that. So in creating the circumstances for healing, we must let the person themselves decide what it is that they need to do. So we help them to come up with a plan which covers all four pillars. And we don't tell people what to do. In fact, one of the principles is the answers are always within. What we do is to help people to stop, pause and reflect and go inwards to connect with their true self, to connect with their intuition, to decide what it is they need to do. And in the right circumstances, given the right amount of time, they always come up with the answers. David, where can people find you? Easy answer to that, positivemedicine.com. We're in the process of upgrading the website. It, it's up and running currently, but it will look different in the future because our focus is going to be far more on the primary care model. As you look at the website now, it's very much focused on employers and what employers can do. There will be a shift to both primary care strategy and for individuals. I'm gonna stop talking about what we could do and I'm going to demonstrate what we can do. And it is partnerships. Above all else, we're looking for healthcare professionals. We're looking for doctors and health coaches. I see the future of healthcare as being a collaboration between doctors and healthcare professionals with an increasing role for health coaches. We're looking for collaborations now. A great deal of wisdom, a great deal of insight from a person who frames himself as a disruptor. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you, Moyes. I've loved being here. The Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com.